Hello and welcome to this special episode of Control-Alt-Delete. This episode was recorded live at Samsung KX in Cold Drops Yard in front of a live audience, which was very exciting. It was a really brilliant venue, so thank you to Samsung for hosting. And it's been a while. It's so good to be back in person again. A wonderful panel of women got together to discuss the brilliance bias, the myth that still sadly pervades our society and work culture, where brilliance is often seen as a male trait. Many studies have said that 75% of people implicitly and unknowingly associate high levels of intelligence or intellectual brilliance with men more than women, and we unpick those statistics. It seems slightly crazy to still be discussing this as a topic, but the statistic was so intriguing, and I really enjoyed chatting to the panel all about the myths and the stereotypes around a certain type of person being heralded, when actually, obviously, it comes in all shapes and sizes. So in this episode, Unpicking This Topic, I have a brilliant lineup. Annie Redoubt, the best-selling author of Shy, and Chloe Findlay-Walker and Nida Chowdhury, who both offer interesting perspectives from Samsung, who I'm super excited to be partnering with for this episode as part of its Samsung Pioneers program. So I hope you enjoy this theme, and to find out more, please head to the show notes for more information. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. This is our first live podcast event in a long time. So this is really, really special and nice to be here in person. Um, I'm really excited to be here because I had a Samsung when I was a teenager and I wrote about it in my book, Control, Alt, Delete. So this is like a full circle moment. We've got this wonderful panel here today. Samsung came with this the idea of talking about the brilliance bias, and we'll get into what that is, but the theme is really meaty. We're going to have a really good chat, and I'm really excited to talk to you all. So when we talk about brilliance bias, there's a myth that sadly pervades our society still and work culture that brilliant is often associated with the type of person, and that brilliant isn't just different types of people. There's like this kind of well, normally male voice in a meeting that is just associated with being brilliant. And I definitely see this in the publishing world, that some voices are sort of just thought thought of as immediately a brilliant voice, where there's kind of not as much evidence as someone else. And when I read this statistic, that 75% of people implicitly and unknowingly associate high levels of intelligence with men more than women, I kind of laughed and thought, I don't really believe that to be true, obviously. But there's this statistic that is actually out there, and this is not a made-up statistic, so where has this come from? And so today we're going to unpick really why this is still a thing, what we think, what we can do to um, reduce our bias in the world, and also just to kind of believe in ourselves more and also think that we are brilliant, which I don't think we're very good at in this country very much. I'm going to introduce my amazing panelist. Um, so we've got Annie Redoubt, journalist, best-selling author of Freelance Mum and Shy, which is an incredible book for anyone who really wants to turn something that they think has been treated almost like being an introvert as something that is negative into a brilliant positive, which of course it is. Chloe Finley-Walker next to me will be talking about her day-to-day role in communications throughout business. You're the marketing insights manager at Samsung. So you've got so much to offer in terms of the business side of things, but also outside of that. Nida Chowdhury at the end there, senior product manager and part of the connected services and tech team, leading the voice integrations 
It's like the techiest thing I've ever, ever heard. <laughs> I'm really excited um, that you're here as well. Thank you so much. This is the great thing. I've been doing the podcast for five years now. We've reached like 10 million people that I'm literally at home by myself making it. So any, any sort of interaction <clears throat> is very welcome. Um, so yeah, let's kick off. So when we talk about bias, just to remind everyone kind of what it means, it's the inclination to kind of have prejudice against a person or a group in a way that is unfair. And we have conscious and unconscious bias. And there's a difference between the two, but most of our bias, we like to think is unconscious. But can we kind of dig into what, you know, the bias in your lives, what you feel about this? Do you agree with the stat if it, someone came to you? I found it quite shocking because I work solely with women. So I run a business called The Rebora and it's, I run online courses and, and coach women who want to basically run online courses and coach. And, um, and they're so incredible and um, impressive and successful and they make good money often whilst looking after young kids and doing loads of other things. So the idea, of, and I just don't have men in my work life at all, ever. So the idea for me that there's this idea that men are somehow more impressive or, or better or more brilliant um, in business feels completely wrong because of my world. But then I look to all the kind of CEOs of the, the top um, companies in the UK and, you know, it's, it's so male. Um, so it, st it starts to become clear that where, where this bias comes from, I think if we look and we see men at the top, then we assume that men are are more capable yeah I always thought it was ironic working in women's magazines that the top top person is normally a man I always find that really odd in meetings oh really um Nida Chloe what about what about you guys yeah I guess I think that I was surprised at the 75 percent I feel that was quite high from a tech perspective like Nida and I both work for Samsung and tech is massively dominated by men um if you just look at the top tech companies in in the world if CEOs are all men so I think that's where that bias partially comes from I think there's a lot of incredible women that work within Samsung and across all like different types of companies not just tech so for me like it absolutely did not shock me at all like I read it and I was completely unfazed by it because I'm so used to having been the only woman in a room and it's come come to work and like I've been referred to as that I can do the job even though I'm a woman so like when I first started with Samsung and I was selling like TVs in store and I was the person in the store that had the big Samsung branding and I was the TV expert and I would still have customers come up to me and say can I speak to a man about this and I think there's two parts to it it's firstly it's that it doesn't phase me that men would see themselves as brilliant but also generally the women I've worked with we tend to self-deprecate so it also wouldn't surprise me that women also wouldn't necessarily associate brilliance with themselves so for me you know from a young age in my experience girls are raised to sort of be submissive and to go with the status quo and not stick out and brilliance in itself is about being different and standing out and not being the status quo so how are we meant to emanate brilliance if everything we've been taught in our childhood is to just go under the radar and just be seen and not heard and just say yes to everything? How are we meant to be brilliant? So for me, it, it didn't it didn't phase me, but I'm so glad that it that it did phase you because that gives me hope. Yeah, and on that on that topic, because I know that um, before we've discussed how you have 
in the past wanted to blend in. And I know that a lot of people feel that you kind of you don't want to stand out sometimes, especially at the early stage of your career. You just want to kind of be in a meeting and be the same as everyone else. But you've turned that around. Like you say, you like standing out now. Yeah. How did you get to that point? Because I guess I was thinking in my head about how far we've come in even like the self-help books in this realm of like lean in in 2014, yeah. which I actually really liked at the time. And now, you know, everyone's probably kind of rolling their eyes at that a little bit. But that to me signals progress that we even think things are outdated. I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that when Lean In came out, it was revolutionary. And that was only what, six or seven years ago. So amazing that we've had such a paradigm shift in such a short amount of time. But it was revolutionary then. And we can't forget that. that that's how different the world was. And for me, I was raised in a household where the only real careers that were seen as being stable or as giving security were like traditional ones like medicine or accountancy or law. And my entire family thought I was absolutely crazy for wanting to, after having gone to university and studying the things that would give me a true career that actually I wanted to stay with Samsung and I wanted to develop a career in tech. And so at home, I was having to kind of underplay how well I was doing because partly they didn't really understand what I was doing, and maybe they didn't want to because they thought I would just eventually grow up and have my real career. And then at work, I was trying to blend because I didn't want to just be seen as the girl. I wanted to be seen as the person who could deliver the sales. And it was very much, I was trying to just blend. I didn't want to be seen as different. I just wanted to be seen as really competent and really brilliant. And for me, brilliance was the absolute minimum I had to achieve to just keep my job. Because for me, there was so much more to lose because if I didn't do well at my job, then I had to face the shame of going home and admitting to everybody that had told me that I could never have stability in this career, that, yeah, I didn't get the stability. And I guess the, the turning point just came up. For me personally, it was when I got a few years in and I started to actually recruit. And when I started to recruit, and I was like, I now have the opportunity to bring more people into this space. And I started to recognize it. That was the first time I had the conscious realization that I only really had one female mentor in a she, she was a mentor to me, but she wouldn't formally know it. I hadn't realized that I didn't identify with anybody else. I didn't know who else I could look up to. And I realized that if, if I had had that, maybe I'd have had a different confidence. And so I realized that I need to be that for the future generations. So, you know, I represent see, women. I represent people of color. I represent the queer community. And we exist and we need to be seen so that people can relate to us because those are just parts of our identity. Our ability to do our job doesn't have to do with what we're told by other people. It's what we consciously decide. Okay, I didn't see anybody that looks like me, but if I want there to be more people like me, I need to show my face. Definitely. Thanks for doing this panel as well, because I know that a lot of people is out of your comfort zone. Um, But thank you for sharing that. And Annie, I know that you said like me that you were shocked by the statistic. And then you said that you kind of reflected on it a bit. And actually in your self-employed life, being surrounded by women, you were saying that actually in traditional office roles that you've had before, things weren't like that. Would you be able to talk a little bit about what you saw in those spaces? Yeah, so I worked as a copywriter in tech before this must have been nearly eight years ago. And it was 90% male workforce. And when I became pregnant, I was the second person in the entire company to take maternity leave. And men weren't taking paternity leave beyond two weeks sometimes. Um, And I lost my job 
as soon as I gave birth, they terminated my contract and I didn't realize that was maternity discrimination. I didn't realize that I would have three months to make a claim. Um, so, but I also decided to go quietly. I didn't want to kick up a fuss. I wanted to leave on good terms so that I could find a way to return or so that they give me a reference for my next job. But what happened is I had my baby and I decided, um, one, that I wanted to have more flexible work that I could do from home. And two, I never wanted anyone to have that power over me and my career again. I didn't want to go into another um, corporate environment surrounded by men where a man would say, um, okay, now that you've had a baby, that's it, you're gone. And I, I got on really well in that tech company. I was kind of climbing my way up. I... I really liked it and I was really surprised that they would so quickly let go of me just because I was pregnant, because I was a woman. Um, and so I started setting up my own businesses um, and I've now got three children and I do work from home. Um, and yeah, I, and I think that probably the reason I only work with women is because I want to help other women to rise. And so my work is about... I offer online courses that women can take. They often work on them around sort of caring for young children and it helps them to set up businesses and to launch online courses. And I coach women. Yeah, so I think I, I want to be, just go in an opposite direction to the one that I was, I was kind of stuck in this very male company. I want, I want all the women to rise together. Yeah. And then my books are for anyone who wants to read them, but I definitely always have a female readership in mind and I think probably the content flex that yeah love that I know that you said as well that you know in the self-employed space even though it can be very positive and I like you know like you I find that since quitting my traditional corporate job I, I have been more flexible um financially have benefited from that there's there's no sense of the ceiling necessarily when you're literally just working on the internet and you have your laptop in a tote bag it's like oh okay look, lots to do but in the self-employment realm, in the startup space, the venture capital split between women being in the room and actually getting the funding they need, that, could you talk about the statistics you read? Because that is kind of wild. Yeah. So I had to actually look this up and write it down <laughs> because it's shocking. Um, so I was talking to my husband about the fact that women get 2% of the funding. That was a stat I had. So of all venture capital that's invested in all startups, women, female founders get 2%. So I had a statistic. My husband was like, but don't, aren't there just less female founders? So I looked it up and in the UK, there are 32.37% of UK businesses are female owned. For every one pound of venture capital investment in the UK, less than one P goes to all female teams. All male teams get 89p and mixed gender teams get 10p. Wow. So it's even worse yeah, yeah. <laughs> than I thought. I mean, yeah. Because when we think of being brilliant, which is the theme of this panel, that seems to me like brilliant ideas and really great innovative ideas and these great things that are going to change our culture and world post-COVID. Well, that you know, there is a bias there. There is. And that's why awards like the Women in Innovation Award, which I've recently applied for, are so important. But as we were sort of discussing earlier, um, we shouldn't need those awards because we should just all be getting like a fair slice of the of the pie. And, you know, to, to, to need these separate spaces for women sort of shows how unequal everything still is. Yeah. And I think as well, just to touch on what Annie said, I think it's brilliant that you're actively making sure that you recruit 
brilliant women into your workplaces, but it's not actually just the responsibility of women. I think that if anybody wants a diverse workplace, you should all be striving towards having that diverse working place. It doesn't just sit with women. So I would say, for example, if you're in a really senior position as a male, you look around and your direct reports are all male. You need to make a conscious decision for your next recruit to get a brilliant woman into that role because it's not that there aren't women applying for these roles, right? We know that women are applying, maybe not at the same um, at the same speed as what men are, but they are applying for these roles. They're just as qualified. They're just as bright. So it's about being self-aware and making that decision to bring more women into that space. And I think to go a step further is that as a woman of colour, I look around and I don't see a lot of black women in tech. Um, and I don't see a lot of black women in Samsung. So for me, it's, you know, if there's a team full of women, are we looking around and being like a woman of colour represented here? Or if there are women of colour, are there black women represented in this space? Because I think Asian women are a bit more represented than black women within the tech space. So I think there's so many layers, but I think in a different way, we all contribute into making sure that we are making sure that all women get an equal platform um, in, in, all, in all industries, not just tech, but I think it stands out in tech quite a lot. Do you know, it's quite interesting. I was thinking earlier, I remember going before I had children. So in my like mid twenties, I went for a job interview and I took my wedding ring off. No, my engagement ring. Cause I thought if I go into this, this interview and they see I'm about to get married, they'll assume I'm about to have children and I won't get the yep. job. And now I look back and it just seems crazy that I had to do that. And I did get the job and I didn't have children and until later, but it's, you know, that kind of, I think, that's why it's really important that men take paternity leave and that we split these things. So mm -hmm. it's not just assume that she's yeah. going to have a baby and then she's going to take a year's maternity leave. It's like, maybe she'll have a baby, but maybe she'll be back in a few months and the, the partner will yeah. take yeah. some leave. But Chloe, I wanted to ask you, I, I don't want to talk about the pandemic constantly, but do, do you think anything has changed with so much being up in the air and so much honesty I think in business no one's trying to pretend to be this like filtered perfect personal brand walking around anymore rural people trying to make life happen do you think that that's changed how we sort of see ourselves or put ourselves forward yeah definitely I think that well first of all I think that the pandemic made a lot of people come to this halt and that halt meant that we weren't running around 24 7 going to work going for work drinks and in a way, I, I'm guilty of it. I don't know if anyone else is. Like almost revolving everything around work. Um, and I think because of that, it means that I've been able to define brilliance in a different way. I'm not Chloe, you know, the brilliant marketing insights manager, but I'm also a brilliant daughter. I'm actually really, really bright and enjoy reading certain stuff. So in my definition of brilliance in that sense of change. But I think... The pandemic has made people, it's given everyone a bit of a reality check. And I think because of that, a lot of people are more open. I've found anyway, in my teams, people are more open to sharing um, more about their personal life. And for that, because of that, it creates like a really vulnerable and transparent place in the workplace. And having that transparency in teams is so important because it means we all recognize that we're not superhuman. We all recognize that actually we don't have to go into a meeting perfect if I want to have my camera off because I've had a rubbish night's sleep 
that's okay because we're having that transparency up front. So I think creating this kind of like safe space where people can be vulnerable is really important. And the pandemic has allowed us to do that because, you know, you're on Zoom, you hear people's dogs barking in the background, <laughs> you hear the kids screaming, coming into the camera saying hello. And that actually makes people a bit more human. Um, so yeah, I think that that has actually really allowed us to thrive and allowed people to be more vulnerable and create a safe space in work. Um, and yeah, allowed us to realize that we're not all brilliant at all times. And that's absolutely fine. Yes. Yeah. So you can almost be like messy and a bit chaotic and brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have and to be this fine. perfect thing. Yeah. Definitely. Because I also read this thing recently. I wanted to bring it up quickly because I just thought it'd be interesting to get your opinion. But on the Harvard Business Review, there was a article saying we need to stop using the word impost- the words imposter syndrome and to stop saying it to women specifically because we don't really say it to men. And they were saying that the the word syndrome is actually connected in the past to syndromes that women would have, like hysteria or just ways that we could basically put women to one side and tell them they're a bit mad. And I've tried to not use that phrase too much anymore because I think it almost puts onus on women to sort themselves out. How do you feel about that terminology now? Would you still use it? Do you think it's relevant? I think it can be quite useful in terms of understanding why you're feeling unconfident. So in business, when I'm surrounded by men who are making more money and moving ahead faster than me and getting the investment when I'm not, um, to understand that the reason I feel uncomfortable and like an imposter is because it's a very male space and I'm not seeing me, anyone like me, already there. So sometimes having the right language can help you to understand your experience. But um, it's, that's really interesting what you say about syndrome. And <laughs> I've def- yeah. I definitely think we need to be really careful about the language we use, particularly about women and in terms of hysteria and, and um, sort of thinking women are more neurotic and all these other things, which we're not. We're often doing a lot more. So we're feeling a lot more stressed, but we're not sort of born that way. It's, it's the pressures that are heaped on us. Totally. And even in terms of like our monthly cycle and all these other things, it's like, why do we ignore that those things exist? Like, and sometimes we are made to feel like imposters. It's true. So it comes from somewhere for sure. Um, I wanted to ask you, Nida, about talking to men more about this topic, because I am aware that we are maybe generalizing slightly when we do, do talk about men and women. And I try not to do that too much. But in the terms of the statistic we're kind of speaking about on this panel, what do you think that men can do? What do you expect men to do in your life? And do they do enough in your world at the moment? My team and actually all the roles I've had at Samsung have always been mainly male dominated. As I said, I'm used to being the only female in the room. And I think it's really easy to blame. I think it's really easy to say like, oh, the men aren't doing enough. We've grown up with the two easiest things to do when it comes to discussing or tackling difficult topics like discrimination is to blame somebody else, so shirk the responsibility or ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist. And I would like to see more people consciously take the decision to educate themselves and lean into the the difficult conversations. Because the only things easy about dealing with discrimination or bias is to ignore it or to shirk the responsibility. Everything else in driving change in this space is awkward, it's upsetting, it's really difficult. 
over the last year, whether it's been about discrimination against women, people of color, people of the queer community, I've had lots of friends and colleagues make comments like, I wish I could help, but I don't know how. Or it must be really crap. I don't know how you do it. I'm sorry. Like we've been conditioned to think statements like that make us feel really caring, but make us seem really considerate. They're actually nothing statements because they don't help the person. They might make the person making the statement feel less guilty or feel better about themselves, but it doesn't change anything. So I think ultimately it comes down to just, for me, being a considerate and a decent person. I think men in this instance, or just anybody with privilege, should take the conscious decision to want to make a change, be more aware of what's happening to the people around them. So how are people being treated? How are people being spoken to? Or how are they being spoken about? Pay attention and then reflect on whether you would feel comfortable being subjected to the same type of treatment. And if the answer is yes, great. Raise awareness of how great that is, encourage that behavior. But if the answer is no, do something about it. Don't just bury your head under the sand or think that somebody else is gonna deal with it. Raise the fact that it made you feel uncomfortable. Ask questions of the people involved. Like, Why was that their go-to position? And, and have those difficult conversations. Because unless we all take accountability, and it's not about taking blame. So actually what I've said to you, my friends and my colleagues who have said sorry, is I don't, frankly, you saying sorry isn't gonna change it. You didn't cause the situation. I don't, I don't need to blame anyone and I don't need somebody to say sorry. I just want everyone to be a part of the conversation and make changes together. So you know, rather than just wanting to appear like you care or saying, you know, essentially avoiding cancel culture, be present, have the conversation, ask questions and try and learn because we can't all empathize with the circumstances of everybody around us, but we can try and ask more questions and try and learn. And I'll, I think like for my male colleagues who have been really open and supportive in their own way, a lot of them have shared that they haven't felt like, particularly on the topic of more equality for women, that they haven't necessarily felt entitled to be a part of that conversation. And you know, all I've said to them is, the worst thing that can happen is somebody tells you that your opinion is wrong or that they don't agree. You, get, you might be embarrassed, you might feel stupid, but that's it. You've not really got anything to lose. So just just pay attention to what's happening to the people around you and make sure that when you see something good, that you praise it. And when you see something that makes you feel uncomfortable, you call it out. Yeah, mm. definitely. I, I, some of the kind of most memorable points for me in lockdown, for example, were some really, really tough conversations or awkward conversations that you kind of go away from thinking, wow, I'm really glad we had that conversation. I don't work in an office anymore, but do you encourage that sort of outward conversation, like everything on the table, um, is that the culture of the office you work in or how do we get to that place? It's, it's the culture of the team that I work on. At the beginning of lockdown, I definitely felt like I was having to drive it. Before COVID, I had enough distractions that I was able to maintain the illusion. I'll be honest, it was an illusion, like, like projecting that I'm on top of everything and that I can be brilliant because I was so scared that I was going to lose my job if I looked incompetent. And then it was like this attack on the senses, like homeschooling, so, you know, and just never being able to switch off. So you wake up, you open your laptop, you're working the whole time. Everything was like a video call. And I got to this point where I just got so overwhelmed and I just, I pushed my team to have the honest conversations. And I had to lead by saying, I'm not okay. I'm able to do my job, but I don't feel okay. Am I the only person that feels like this? And then, you know, from there, the conversations have continued, but I definitely felt like I had to push that. 
And I'm, I'm not sure what it's like in other environments and for other teams, but it, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't initially accepted as the status quo. It's so brave to do that, to, to stand up and say when you are the only woman in your team and possibly the only one homeschooling as well as doing work, to stand up and say, I'm struggling. It takes real guts and it's so, um, yeah, it's really powerful. Yeah, I think I had to... I had to work on it myself where I, within a couple of months, I had to change the language because I started off by saying, I'm struggling. And I was kind of positioning it as, I feel broken. And I think language is really important because I stopped saying broken because actually I'm still managing to get everything done. But I shifted it from being, I'm really struggling. I don't think I'm coping. And now the way I speak about it is, this is a lot. Even if I was, you know, actually over lockdown, I've been diagnosed um, with colitis too. So, you know, my health isn't where it used to be. I can't switch off from work. And I've shifted my language from being, there's a lot going on right now. We need to reprioritize. And even if I was at 100%, I wouldn't be able to get all of this done. So I've shifted my own narrative on it. But it was, it was terrifying. But I had just got to this point where if I don't share this, I'm not going to be able to keep performing. Yeah. And I think it's great that you brought up that conversation and then bring that up. But I think there are a lot of people that maybe wouldn't want to have those transparent conversations or even don't have... Um, the confidence to bring that conversation forward. So I think there are other ways that we can work to bring our male colleagues to support us. Maybe it's not via that transparent conversation, which is amazing, but it's like little stuff. Like if I'm going into a meeting and I know my line manager is going to be there, I might give him a call and be like, I've got these really good ideas for this call. This is what I'm thinking. He's got a heads up. So on that call, he's almost going to co-sign me. It's little things like that. It's not always about which the transparent conversation is amazing and it needs to be had. But I think there are small wins that we can do. I think we've all been in a meeting before where someone's like taken our idea or spoken over us or you feel like you've been cut off. But actually, if you have that person that's going to co-sign you or you have that person that's, that knows you're an introvert and it's taken a lot for you to speak up and they're going to be like sorry, can we just take a moment? Chloe was speaking or Emma was speaking. Those, that is being an ally as well. And that is helping to drive change as well because it's showing, you know, actually guys, we're not all just going to scream over this one person because sometimes it's down to character as well is going to put their point across. And I think that's one, another way that we can kind of tackle just the different biases that we experience across, um, across the workplace. Yeah. And I think that's why burnout is really associated with women at the moment. I know so many of my female friends who are so burnt out, like medically so, like signing off work for three months. And of course men get burnt out too, um, but I'm not seeing it at the rate that women are at the moment. And I wonder if it is wanting to overachieve, to be taken seriously, but also just the juggling that goes on. So many hats at all times kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. And I think that wanting to overachieve is a massive thing. Like there would be a point where I wouldn't say something in a meeting unless I knew my idea was exceptional. It had to be better than everybody else's and it had to be almost like a perfect plan. It couldn't just be initial thoughts. And if it was, which is back to your points about language, the way that I would position it would be like, um, so I've got this really good idea and I think that, and maybe, but it's just initial thoughts and no, that's not how other people <laughs> position it. They're so confident with it. And I think as women, we need to kind of remove that language and just say, yes, it is an initial idea, but this is what I think. And make sure you're heard in those spaces. Do you remember there was an app that came out that would delete sorry from your emails? And it was aimed at women yeah. who said yeah. sorry too much. And I just kind of sat there thinking, I don't mind saying sorry. I think saying sorry sometimes is a nice thing. So why don't, instead of being like a man and deleting all the sorries, why don't we 
ask men to say sorry more. But you know what? It's very time efficient to not say sorry and True. to not do all the flowery language around it. I've, I've become yes. really blunt in my emails, particularly to men, if I ever do email them. And it really saves you a load of time. Yeah. I swear BuzzFeed did a piece years ago where someone emailed like a CEO for a month and they were just so productive. I think they emailed yes or no to every email. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. Um, But Chloe, I think we spoke about this um, before and I wanted you to kind of elaborate on it, if you don't mind, that this bias can can happen, obviously, before we reach the working world. So these sort of biases are like ingrained in us from an early age. You know quite a lot about the sporting world as well. Would you be able to talk a bit about the early stages where you feel like this stuff might creep in? Yeah, sure. So from my experience and from just kind of observing and looking around and doing lots of reading, those biases come in really young. They don't just hit you when you walk into a corporate setting. They start a lot younger and it's through little things. And I was discussing with um, Annie and Nida before. There's a lot of primary schools that don't allow girls to wear trousers still. That is such a small thing, but that is a gender bias. Like, that and it starts from that young and it could be for example um culturally a lot of cultures different so i know that there's a lot of like maybe black african cultures and a lot of asian cultures that from young your brilliance is defined in terms of how well you can cook how well you can clean can you iron are you good at maths maybe nothing beyond that so i think culturally our definition of brilliance and those gender stereotypes are ingrained from quite young and when you take those forward in life you know we can't all just shrug off what we've learned right so it means that a lot of people carry those through life very rarely from I would say particular cultures do you hear them saying go and be a CEO start your own business so I think those cultures do sometimes we Sometimes we learn from our parents and we learn from our ancestors, right? So I think that some of that impacts the person that you are today. But I think there's something to be said for breaking those stereotypes almost and making sure that whatever you are, like behavior is learned and that's fine, but we're also still in control of how we make a change. So I'm in quite a fortunate position. I was never like kind of boxed in, but there are people that are. But I think with the world changing so rapidly, which is kind of on off a tangent, but I think it's important to address, there is so much space for women to move outside of those like traditional roles that I just spoke about, like teachers, nurses, and they're brilliant. They're brilliant roles. And I think we're seeing it. But with the digital world increasing so quickly, there are roles that our parents would not have even heard of. I don't even think my mum and dad understand what marketing is (laughs) properly. These are roles for women and for men because they've all would have grown up with this new sort of like internet generation. So I think that, yes, it does start culturally like quite young in some societies. But I think that we we as like the Gen Z millennial, everyone looks really Gen Z millennial, <laughs> are able to break that. And I think just um, touching on what you said about sports, I'm very passionate about supporting women in sport. Um, I have been forever. I play a lot of netball. And I think that what's really important is just like, when I look around and I look at how well some of these men have done from sport, like, oh my God, if I knew I could get paid that much for kicking a ball, I would have been trying to do it as well. So I I think, but then the, the flip side is, is that no, it's not as much as a popular sport, but netball, for example. So 
there's a league in England called the Super League, and it's at the top. It's at the top league in England, and the top goal scorer um, within the Super League got paid twelve thousand five hundred pounds last year for a whole year's work. But to know that a woman in the UK can be at the peak of her sport and be paid £12,000 a year, I mean, I wouldn't even be able to survive in that. So I think having that perspective really goes to show how men are benefiting a lot more than women. And I think, you know, there's a lot to be said about, you know, the backgrounds, how much money's in netball versus how much money's in football. But there's a big pay gap there. And even when you just compare men's football and women's football, there's a massive gap. Um, and I think the point is, is that proportionately what the money that netball brings in, that they're paying their players is much smaller to what the money that football gets in and what they're paying their players. So I think in sport, we need to work and continue fighting for inequality for equality but we see that bias there as well and mm. you can't really hide from it yeah that's fascinating and so true because I was thinking so much in the lens of this industry and when you look at all the other industries yeah it really highlights it yeah it's not it's not it's not just in tech no no all. no not at all um Annie I wanted to ask I really wanted to get to, to you to ask you about your book Shy would you be able to talk about Shy and why you wanted to write it and what it's about yeah, so my book, Shy, originally I was going to write a book on confidence. And then the more I thought about confidence, the more I reflected on the fact that I had been really shy as a child. And I wondered how I'd gone from being so shy and wanting to just like hide in my mum's skirt and never go to like parties or to go to them. But I found it hard to participate. How did I go from that to this, you know, speaking in front of people and having a career and um, and the more I looked into it, the more I realized that, one, I am still shy. It's still in there. It's not so obvious from the outside, but I think I've learned to sort of mask it well. And I've sort of learned lots of coping mechanisms. But also that from being shy, I had become a much better listener and I'd become much more empathic. And I spent a lot of time on my own writing and I'm now a writer and that's my career. And I think if I'd have been more outgoing and chatty, I would have been doing that instead of writing and reading. So I started to see that there are lots of benefits to shyness. And that's not to say like, it's wonderful to be shy because actually it's not, it's quite hard and it does create challenges and, and barriers. But um, like with all our perceived flaws, you can work with it and there's always a flip side. I think there's always a positive to what we consider to be a flaw. And Richard <laughs> Branson, who's shy, and Jim Carrey and Johnny Depp and all these incredibly successful, famous, impressive people um, who were shy. A lot of actors were shy and so their parents put them into performing arts school to help them to gain confidence and then they became amazing actors. So it's really interesting when you, when you learn that all these people who are doing so well um, started out shy or are still shy now. I love that you can take something that for so long you thought was your flaw, like your own secret flaw, and actually turn it on its head. And it's one of the things that makes us who we are mm. and therefore can be a superpower to lead to whatever we want to do. Talking about confidence quickly, because I find when we talk about feeling brilliant or doing brilliant work or being a brilliant woman... Um, I found that in my career, I worried the more confident I got, the more people wouldn't like me <laughs> because there's something about a really, and I know there's a line between confidence and thinking too much of yourself or whatever, but I always felt that just squishing myself down slightly was more palatable for people. And that's, I just wanted to open that up. Like, do you think that could stop people from fulfilling their full potential? I, I think it's a shame that you feel that way. And I think I do as well. 
Um, and I think that's about the idea that girls and women should be nice. And if we're nice, we're listening and we're kind of holding space for other people. We're not taking up space. We're not being loud. Um, but confidence is a really interesting word in terms of shyness. And I heard some, so there was something circulating on Instagram that um, resonated because um, this person was saying that a shy child who chooses not to participate, so my middle son is really shy, and he goes into his class, and he doesn't go and like get in the mix with everyone else. All the boys want to play fight. He doesn't want to do that. He hangs back. We go to a party. He sits with me. He doesn't go and play with the other kids. And people find that really difficult and they want to make comments and they're like, you know, he's really shy. Is, is he not going to come and play? And they sort of challenge him all the time. And I'm just like, just leave him. If he wants to, he'll do it in his own time. And then I heard the psychologist say that a child who um, is shy and doesn't force themselves to participate is actually showing real confidence mm -hmm. because they're, they're kind of sitting in their comfort zone. And so, uh, yeah, I find confidence interesting in, in, in that respect because I think you can be quiet and confident. But you strike me as someone who's so confident. You're so nice as well, but you're so confident. And like when you walked in here today and I hadn't met you before and you have this kind of lovely air of confidence, I can't see how anyone would find it offensive. Oh, I didn't mean so this to turn into a compliment <laughs> show. No, but it's no, interesting no. how we perceive ourselves and um, you know, as we start to like hopefully make more money from our businesses and become more successful or get more followers on Instagram or whatever it is that, that we think shows that we're becoming more successful. Um, I don't know, it does make you feel better in yourself and more confident and more capable and other people think you're better and more successful and capable. So if you then have like an air of just not being so nervous about everything all the time, I just, yeah. But that's it. It's it's like you say, quite. It can be a quiet confidence. Mm. Well, how do you guys feel about the word confidence? Like, what what does that signal to you? Where where do you want to get to with confidence? Because like we said, when we look at men, like sometimes it's it is an outward confidence and a, almost like a bravado, and maybe we don't need to do that. I'm comfortable or I'm happy if somebody else told me I I seemed confident but for me I think confidence is more of a feeling if I can make other people around me feel calm like you mentioned nervous energy if I can dissipate nervous energy consciously or, or subconsciously so with my words or with my just you know my body language that for me then is confidence I don't tie confidence and competence together mm -hmm. and I do think they often yes. get yes they, got, they get blurred because you can be really good at something and not know it, but you know, you're still competent. Whereas I think confidence is more about the impact you have, I think, to a situation. So I actually have a different perspective to you guys because I do walk into meetings sometimes and be like, I don't want to come across too confident. Or I do, I wouldn't say dumb myself down, that's too strong. I don't say certain things or I might have a really good point, but not say it and just marinate on it and then send it in an email after because maybe it's because I don't think it's solely because I don't want to come across as confident but I sometimes am the type of person that I just like to listen because I think listening is just as important as speaking so for me if I'm going into an important meeting I might not be the person that's like talking over everyone and trying to like comment on everything that someone says but I just want to take away the information. And then I've got some really good points that I want to share after. But I think we were talking about this before. That's okay. 
that's okay. And we should be trying to get rid of the idea that in order to be successful, we should start imitating male qualities because that's not true. They can be, there can be so many things. And I think each of that is okay. And the way that you kind of like present yourself and the way that you present your ideas, whether that's on email, whether that's face to face, whether it's, you know, talking on a call, they're all fine and they'll all make you successful within your own right. I think there's no right way, right? We're all individuals and we're all, we can all kind of just help navigate our own careers and navigate our own space. And there's no like one, one shoe fits all. Definitely. But that to me sounds like you're really confident in your ability because you're doing it your own way, which is Mm. listening and then following up. And I think that's amazing. And I think we're all different. And that's why it's really great to talk openly about what makes each of us brilliant in our own way. Yeah. And I think it's about how we're defining confidence, right? Like the loudest person isn't always the most confident. Yeah. So Mm. it's about how we define confidence and what that means to us. And then how we execute our confidence is different for everyone. So... I kind of wanted to end on that, like our own version of what we think brilliant is. If we could just quickly say what we think is and maybe our definition has changed over the years. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll go first. Yeah, so for me, being brilliant is being authentic, authentically yourself and just being you. I think if you are the best version of yourself, then you're brilliant. And I think for me, it has changed because for me, early in my career, brilliant was being the most articulate. It was about being the smartest. It was about being the most well-presented. But actually, I'm, you know, I can speak, but I'm the most articulate. Like I grew up in East London, I'm quite cockney, but I'm always going to be that and that's going to be me. And that is the best version of myself as long as I'm just true to myself and I just remember where I come from and I stay grounded and whatever I achieve, as long as that's the root and the core of me, then to me, that's brilliance achieved. Yes, love that. Yeah. So do I. How can I follow that? (laughs) (laughs) That's, yeah, very similarly. I think it's about um, being being brave, being vulnerable, being open, being authentic, um, believing that you can do whatever you want to do and really persisting and working hard to make it happen and and I think that if you work hard enough and you believe in yourself enough you can make anything happen yeah that's brilliance for me I used to think that brilliance was something that you just like was it was some sort of phenomenon that you just had it you didn't have it it wasn't something that could be developed or something that could be honed but I think you know looking at my upbringing that's just because there was this notion that you know like a woman can't be secure or stable without a man and clearly that's not where I am now um I think now for me I I keep like think about brilliance and you think of like brilliant cut diamonds or you think about like brightness I keep coming back to like a literal definition of brilliance in relation to light and I for me brilliance is showing up brilliance is refusing to kind of hide away into the shadows brilliance is illuminating the path or paths that other people are struggling to find or have purposely been hidden to prevent the progression so it's just it's about shining a light on the things that haven't necessarily always come easily thank you those are all such lovely answers and i'm so grateful for your time tonight this has been really lovely and Yeah, just feel really good in this room. So thank you.